Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My interview guest today, Matt J., describes his family tree as littered with problem drinkers, of which he became one all too quickly. As an only child, Matt grew up in a home where verbal and physical abuse reigned supreme. By the time his parents got divorced, his coping mechanisms included locking himself in his room with books and baseball cards upon which he could obsess. Such means of escape followed him into his teenage years when he found alcohol as a ready-made solution to his feelings of isolation, fear, and shame. Curiously, at a relatively young age, he reflected on his own drinking and wondered if he needed AA. But such introspection soon passed as he continued to drink more heavily throughout his college years and early into his business career. With drinking-related problems mounting, Matt's solitary drinking damaged his marriage and job to the extent that suicide appeared an attractive option. Subsequently, though diagnosed with clinical depression, the prescribed medications did little to help as he continued to drink. Financial ruin in the form of personal bankruptcy finally backed him into a corner from which there was no escape, and Matt entered the rooms of AA in 2014. Finding that some of his obsessive nature accompanied him into AA, Matt set about mastering the literature to the point of self-isolation from the program. Fortunately, some old-timers convinced Matt to get involved in a balanced program with service and fellowship as the core elements in his sobriety. Since then, Matt's involvement in AA has emanated from the center of the program. In addition to regular meetings, Matt co-hosts the podcast Sober Friends, on which I've had the opportunity to appear. Considering his background, Matt's success in Alcoholics Anonymous is evidence of the healing and gifts AA holds for those who really want it and who are willing to do the work. Matt's personal level of contentment correlates beautifully with the level of service work he does within his program and admirably reflects on his desire to carry the message to other alcoholics. So, please enjoy the next 60 minutes with my podcasting friend and AA brother, Matt J. My name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining me today on AA Recovery Interviews. Oh, it's great to be here, Howard. Well, I'm glad you could make it. And you and I first met when uh, I had the opportunity to appear on your podcast called Sober Friends. Yep. You were one of our sober friends that week. Yeah, that was very, very cool. I enjoyed speaking with you and Steve, and I had a chance to listen to it, and I thought it was very well produced and very easy to listen to. And I want to commend you and Steve on taking the initiative and putting out another piece of service work for AA members to be able to gain experience, strength, and hope by listening to what other people have to say. When I got sober back in 2014, I looked for recovery podcasts because I was a big podcast junkie back then. Mm -hmm. And I really could only find like one at the time. And I wanted lots of them because the podcast I was listening to only came out once a week. So it was either the back catalogs or nothing. Now there's every type of flair that you can find of AA, non-AA. Yeah. All types of different stuff, women, men, L LGBTQ. If you're going through it, you're not finding what works for you, you haven't spent enough time. Yeah, that's right. And what's really cool, though, is that 
Some of the most listened to podcasts now are nothing more than the tapes of yesteryear yeah. put into a podcast. And some of that old time wisdom never gets old. It's just, it gets recycled in a different technology and makes it a little bit easier to listen to. Some of the other podcasts I'm sure you've heard where they just tape a speaker in a speaker meeting, those are always interesting to listen to as well. My purpose of doing this particular podcast was because I would go to a lot of speaker meetings and people would spend so much time talking about the how it was, what happened, and the what it's like now. They'd spend so much time on the first two that they'd leave very little time in the end for what it's been like since they've been sober. And some of these people have been sober 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And to relegate 10 minutes at the end of a really nice, almost hour-long talk is to shortchange people of knowing what happens once you get sober and the challenges and the gifts and everything else in people's lives as a uh, result of that. Right. You got sober, you said, in 2014. Yep, March 21st, 2014, 20 day, two days after my youngest came home from the hospital. Just being born? Just being born. I don't know if there was any specific bottom. I, I didn't plan to stop drinking. Hmm. I, I was a drinker. I drank a lot of wine, and I could be... A drinker of wine, a connoisseur, not an alcoholic, because I liked good wines. Mm -hmm. I had Wine Spectator. Alcoholics don't put the money down for a subscription to Wine Spectator. They don't mm. have their special glasses for wine. And I found that although I had trouble stopping on other types of alcohol, white wine was the toughest. Red wine was the second worst. But if you gave a bottle of white wine to me, that was like breathing oxygen. It was very difficult for that to stop for whatever reason. Hmm. Yeah, I was in denial at that time. Does it change the way that you drink, though? I mean, uh, is is the alcoholic going to just drink the whole bottle as if it's a bottle of water, or is he going to savor every sip just like the connoisseur? Depends on where they are on the progression of their illness. Towards the end of my run, the last six months or so, maybe the last year, mm -hmm. I got into scotch and I got into bourbon. And I had taken that turn into hard alcohol, and I made that turn into boxed wine, that the quality was starting to come down. Hmm. I think the alcoholic connoisseur is savoring those sips a little bit. They just take a lot more sips. Mm -hmm. At the end, if somebody is just guzzling, it's just because their progression of their alcoholism has brought them there, not necessarily because they're... A connoisseur. That connoisseur who really is an alcoholic is eventually going to get to guzzling on boxed wine or gallo or whatever they can get their hands on because that's where alcoholism goes to. Yeah. You know, it's funny you should say that because I always enjoyed the taste of beer. Me too. And whether I was drinking one can or 20 cans, I still enjoyed the taste of it. I didn't like the way it made me feel the next morning or while I was throwing up. So I can imagine what it must be like for somebody who's a connoisseur trying to convince themselves that they're not an alcoholic because they're a connoisseur. Did you have those kind of uh, conflicts within yourself? Absolutely. I had so many conflicts that my mind was a mess. Hmm. I didn't really think I had that low of a bottom until I was told I was when I was mm -hmm. a speaker. It was a year or two into me being in the program and I told my story, and, and this, this well-put-together woman who you would not, if you don't know much about Alcoholics Anonymous, you wouldn't see this woman as, this must be an alcoholic. She comes up well-dressed, probably in her 50s, a little Gucci bag. She walks up mm -hmm. to me, and she goes, my God, the mental anguish that you were in. 
that must have been terrible. And I'm thinking, I, I didn't talk about my mental anguish. What, what are you talking about? Just how you talked about how should I drink? Should I not drink? Can I have one beer? I can have one beer, but I feel miserable. I really want two beers, but now I have a third or people watching me. And I did talk a lot about that mental anguish. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I'm far worse than I thought I was. Hmm. And so I pulled aside, realizing I can't judge my own bottom because mm-hmm. I'm always going to make it much better than it really was. And that's part of my mental gymnastics of telling myself, well, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. There's always that. Maybe I wasn't that bad because, well, the guy sitting next to me in the program, he was talking about how he fell into the ER, bleeding from his ears, bleeding from his nose, bleeding from his mouth. And that didn't happen to me. So maybe I haven't earned my chair yet. Mm-hmm. It's okay to earn your chair and not going through that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because whenever I was new in the program, I always felt like everybody had a best worst story. There were so many people with worse stories than mine that it allowed me on days that I wanted to identify with the differences to do just that. And I would, I never got as bad as that guy or the, as that woman. So, And it, at the same time, I also felt a little bit unworthy or inadequate or unprepared to be in a room full of people who had gone through all that stuff. Me too. That's that's amazing that you said that because I haven't heard somebody else say that. I didn't feel as worthy as the old timer who had all these issues yeah. and was thinking, are they looking at me and say, you don't belong here. You, you haven't you haven't gone through the struggles. You haven't paid your dues, your dues of how awful it was for you. Warped thinking. Yeah, and that's the paradox. When we come in, we're trying to find all kinds of reasons why we're not like the people in the room. But at the same time, we get envious of people who are able to get it through a uh, really deep bottom. Whenever I ask people to let me interview them for the show, some of the feedback I get is, well, you know, my story is not all that. I didn't didn't have that deep of a bottom. The perceptions that people have of how bad they have to be before they are worthy of being in AA or deserve to be in AA or uh, it's it's very paradoxical that at the same time we're trying to deny it, we're trying to find reasons why we should accept it. I know a lot of people who sort of had my story where it wasn't that bad, mm-hmm. Finger fingers in, in quotes, it wasn't that bad. And then they went back out. And they became homeless and they became the typical low bottom drunk that you think of. Mm -hmm. So I look at any story. If you chose to get sober and you were blessed to getting sober, share it. You have something to offer because you can show people who maybe are questioning and they haven't lost everything. You can do this now. It's okay to be what. I think Bill W. would have called the almost alcoholic in the 30s. Mm-hmm. You don't have to roll around in the mud. And if you're somebody who rolled around in the mud and looked up and saw the gutter, you have a story to tell for everybody, too. Mm-hmm. I look at people who don't have my story and maybe have this really off-the-wall thing. I close my eyes and listen and say, listen, because if you go back out, this will likely be you. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but someday this will be you. Yeah. So was this the first time you tried to get sober since your first meeting or? Yeah, there was a two month gap between when I got sober and my first meeting. I didn't plan to get sober. I do vividly remember my father-in-law brought over a bottle of wine for us to celebrate the new baby for everybody. And I drank almost the whole bottle and I stopped. I looked at the bottle and I said, I've drank almost the full bottle. I'm going to stop. 
And that was the last time I drank. And then I, I didn't drink for a while. Uh-huh. And I would drive by a liquor store and say, I'm going to go pick up something. Well, I'm a little short on cash. I'm going to go pick up something. Well, I'm going to feel bad if I do. I'm not going to do that. And there was probably about a month where I did that, or I drove by the liquor store, I didn't get anything, and I talked myself out of it, which was weird. And then I watched a show on Freeform called Switched, I think it was called Switched to Birth. And one of the characters was an alcoholic in recovery, and she has a relapse, and she's bringing a glass of wine to her lips, and you can see the look on her face like this is none too smart. Then it hits her lips and her face changes. And I looked, I go, that's me. Hmm. And I finally submitted to the mental anguish I had for years. And once I got to that point, I'm like, I got some work to do. Hmm. And if I'm going to stay sober, if I'm going to do this, not drinking or drinking is the least of my problems. Everything about me has to change. And I felt on fire at that moment because I just wanted alcohol in the worst way. That was hard. So most of us end up at that place, and that's what you're talking about, the jumping off point, after having experienced something at some point in our life, and and for a a number of people I know, it goes all the way back to childhood. Some didn't start drinking until they were in their 30s. Where do you fall in that continuum? How far back do you have to go to see either addictive behavior or behavior that you wanted to influence by drinking? Back to childhood. My first drink was at 16, but I had a friend who, well before this, I don't even think it was in high school, and he talked about how you could get high sniffing rubber cement. And although I never huffed rubber cement, we had made a plan to go to Toys R Us to get a bunch of rubber cement and see how high we could get. Uh And the whole idea of saying, hey, we should go get rubber cement, we'll get high on it. The fact that my mindset wasn't, that's an insane thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, count me out. My thought was, that's a great idea. Hmm. That's an awesome idea that will change me, that will open up horizons. So the opening of horizons and the changing that you were thinking might occur if you did that, was that something that you had sought out as a younger child? Uh, What was your childhood like growing up? Not great. My father beat my mom and she got divorced. I don't Mm. have any brothers or sisters. Mm -hmm. He was a gallon of gallo alcoholic. Mm. My stepfather is an alcoholic. My mother didn't drink the best, was single mom. We didn't have very much money at all. Mm -hmm. We eventually moved to a wealthy town to get me a better education, but I was the poor kid in a wealthy town. And the only, it felt like the only kid who didn't have a father in his life Hmm. or siblings. And that was difficult. I just didn't have the confidence or the maturity to deal with that. It just, I, I always felt like an outsider. I didn't feel like I fit in and I had plenty of defense mechanisms, whether it was my quick wit, a joke, Mm -hmm. hiding, isolating to get away. I had a bunch of alcoholic behaviors before I had a drink just to survive. So you were isolated. You felt alone. So when the opportunity presented itself, did you seek that out? Did you seek out different ways to make yourself feel accepted or part of the in-group? This is a great question. I guess I would do the things that the other kids were doing. Like what? Sports, clothes, going to the arcade. I would take on like tofu their personality because I felt so different than the other people that I had to fake it to be like them. 
How did you manage to keep up? You talked about the difference in, in your economic circumstance from them. Uh, while these, let's say, the, the rich kids were doing what they wanted to do with the backing of parents who had the means, what did that look like for you? Well, I couldn't. So the kids that I hung out with were like me, that they were the poorer kids. We lived in an apartment complex with families in the wealthy town. Mm-hmm. So we hung out. This was before school choice. The next town over was one of the bigger cities in the state I lived in. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of kids from that city who were given the opportunity to come to our school and get out of that big school system. And we hung out with them. I had more in common with those kids Mm -hmm. who came over from the city coming over to our small town. So we spent time in the city, in the inner city doing that type of stuff because we, I felt like I had more in common because they had nothing, I had nothing. So at least you had a bunch of kids to run with at that time. Yes. That sense of belonging, even if it's to the wrong group, can be pretty important when you're an adolescent, can't it? It can. I always felt as though if you knew who I was, you wouldn't want to. I always felt the least of the group. Hmm. Did you ever open up in, in a way that would let the group get to know you or were you very closed down? No, if I did that, then you would find out what's inside and reject me. I held my cards close to the vest. And isn't that a common theme we see a lot? Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that if you go to enough meetings, you're going to hear that probably more than anything else. If if you only knew who I was, you wouldn't want to be around me. That, those feelings of self-loathing. And what's interesting is we feel like we're not as good as everybody else, but the minute we start feeling that way, we feel like we're better than everybody else. And it's so hard to get the right balance, isn't it? Yeah, I had to act better than you so that I could feel normal. I had to be so superior just to be normal. Hmm. Oh, I can identify with that a lot, Howard. So when you first had the opportunity to check out from feeling those feelings, I shouldn't say check out, but let's say alter those feelings with behavior before you started drinking, what kind of things were you doing with this group to fit in, to you know, to feel part of the in crowd that you were at least running with? A lot of people wore baseball caps. So I wore a baseball cap everywhere. Uh, I remember going to the city next to mine every year had this world's biggest pancake breakfast in the spring around this time of year. And we went to socialize and get pancakes. And I remember there was free coffee and I got high as a kite on caffeine. I could not find enough of that coffee and love that feeling and crashed from it. Hmm. Did you drink Coffee after that? Nah. I, I eventually became a regular coffee drinker, but it took to like my 30s. So the years in from your adolescence, because it sounds like you were struggling when you were a child because of what was going on at, at home. How did you get through that? I would lock myself in my room. I did things like read the whole encyclopedia. I read books. I watched TV. Watched a lot of TV to the point that I wish I could cure cancer with the knowledge I have of pop culture because I can name that show. I can name that tune. I can name that celebrity who's obscure. Hmm. And I remember a lot of times crying in my room saying, you know, someday, someday you'll you'll be sad that you treated me this way because I'll be somebody. Now you're feeling those feelings against your parents or just against your father? So my father stopped being a part of my life on Christmas Day in 1982. He passed away last year, and I hadn't seen him since 82 to the day he passed. Mm. He just abandoned. And the idea of him being around terrified me. 
So you were a little, real little kid when he left, huh? S- uh, six or seven. But by then, the, the die is cast. The wires are firmly wired. Uh, so we spend the rest of our lives trying to undo the wiring or recasting the, the important ways of thinking. And, and it usually doesn't happen. We have to find new, new wiring cast new dyes, that sort of thing. So did what was going on at home reflect in school for you? Yes. We moved when I was in fourth grade. In my old elementary school before we moved, things were not that bad. And I remember I was a pretty good speller and I had pretty good handwriting. Uh As soon as we moved, the ability to spell disappeared. My handwriting was atrocious. I used to forget my homework assignments all the time. It was, I had to find strategies to remember things Hmm. because I'd get home and say, I had no idea what my homework is. Looking back, was that a response to what was going on at home or the move itself or the new class? All of the above. Seems unusual that someone who's a good speller would suddenly not become a good speller. I think it was a trauma. The trauma. I can't say I'm the greatest speller even to this day. I have to work at my handwriting. But I just remember there were certain things that just, that I was good at that disappeared. And I I think a a psychologist would look at that as some type of trauma, the move, the new class, the new environment. Was that the only time you experienced that? Yeah, I think it was a pretty traumatic event. There are times now that when I'm under pressure or I'm feeling less than, I get that tunnel vision and the obvious eludes me. Could be I was given a work assignment and you come back to me, why didn't you do this? And then it occurs to me, I did agree to do this. I have no memory between when you gave it and now. I can't even tell you why I didn't do it. I honestly forgot it. Hmm. So all of these feelings and everything else are, are bubbling up when you're a kid. They're coming out in your behavior. When was the first time that you were able to escape those feelings? And, and what did you do to escape them? Predominantly about alcohol or any kind of drugs or altering substance. You mentioned the glue earlier, but you mentioned TV. Baseball became my new obsession. Uh-huh. I became a big Red Sox fan. Uh, I, I had to study every stadium, every player, collect cards. I think that's the commonality. The commonality there is the obsession. Once I become interested in something, I have to be 100% an expert on it. So there was a period of time in the 80s, I could tell you every player on every team, every 25-man roster, when the, when the, the trades happened, I had every card from Donruss and Fleer and Tops, and I just remember baseball being a real big part of my life. I didn't play it other than wiffle ball. I always wanted to play, but my mother wouldn't let me because I might get lice from the helmets, and they shared helmets, and only a bad mother has kids with lice. (laughs) Oh, man, that's unfortunate. It was. I can imagine that's one of those things you look back on, and you can probably gather in the feelings within a nanosecond on yes. that one, huh? Yeah, there were a lot of experiences like that. So fast forward us a little bit here, Matt, uh, to when you started drinking with the intent of escaping the way you were feeling, essentially getting drunk. When, when did that first occur for you? 16 years old, I was angry at my mother for something, and I knew that there were a group of kids that would go into the city next to ours pay somebody to go in the liquor store and get him something. Uh And that's the time I I was really angry. And I said, the hell with it, get me something. And I remember my first beer was a 40 ounce of Budweiser. 
Hmm. And I remember not being able to find the feeling that they had, much like a key in a lock that got stuck, that I just couldn't find it. I eventually did, very quickly. We, we drank whatever we could get. It could be Bud, it could be private stock, it could be malt liquor, it could be Jack Daniels. Mm-hmm. And I remember I didn't like any of it. It all was terrible. Once I finally did find that, to- that feeling of intoxication... I saw somebody had littered and they left a beer bottle out. And I remember looking and saying, why would somebody have one beer? What's even the point of having one beer? Mm-hmm. You don't feel anything from that. I'm pretty sure I was an alcoholic from the first time I had alcohol. That thought may confirm it. I mean, when you're that young and think, who would only want to have one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that might be a good indicator. It was difficult to get alcohol. There were periods of time where it was months between the next time I was going to drink. And I thought about it all the time. It was an obsession at that point. Yeah. And it could be three months, four months, five months, and I don't know how I have a drink, but I thought about it, and I was excited when we could get our hands on alcohol. Yeah, that mental obsession, uh, that starts really early. Some of my guests, and certainly people I've known over the years, have told me that it was so much easier to get drugs than it was alcohol that they found that they would uh, engage in drug use earlier than alcohol. Was that your experience? No, drugs scared me. Hmm. I had a friend who was putting incredible pressure on me to smoke marijuana, and I never had an interest, and I was scared of it. I had some experiences in college at marijuana, Mm -hmm. and it was ugly, and it was paranoia. They were all bad experiences that I didn't enjoy, so it was never for me. Mm -hmm. If there was a joint being passed around, I was good saying, no thank you. Matter of fact, the saying I used to say was, I've got my hands full of alcohol. That's enough for me. Yeah. So I never really got into the drugs because because only drug addicts have drugs. Yeah. And I'm not an addict because my dad was an alcoholic and I'm never going to become an alcoholic. And I'm going to be careful on how I drink to never cross that line. That was always top of mind with me. So you really sidestepped the whole the whole gamut of behavior and escape that drugs for many of us, I think, provided. I, I didn't want to smoke grass when I first did, but then when I did, I found I, I really liked the way it made me feel. And I used to, when my friends would say, let's drink, I'd say, you guys can drink, I'll smoke. And I always felt like I was not so much superior, but... I thought, these guys get sloppy when they get drunk. I get sharpened. I'm sharpened up when I get... In fact, uh, when, when, when I smoke grass, let me take my car out and go for a ride. And I will be so focused that I will never... And I never did get into trouble driving high, but there were times I don't remember driving home, so... Might not be that focused. No, I, I wasn't. I never was. But I, you know, once I realized I could do both and have an even better time, that's when all bets were off. So you weren't a pot smoker, but you were definitely a drinker by the time you were in college. Now, I was the reverse of you. I felt superior because I didn't do drugs. The people who were smoking pot, I'm superior to you. I drink alcohol. Alcohol's legal. Yeah. That's, yeah, I can imagine that must have been interesting. Although, what's funny about it is I used to notice that people were much less apt to say, what? You don't smoke grass? Why not? And looking for answers the same way people are when you would refuse alcohol. And I don't know why that is, but maybe it's because people who smoke grass are a little bit mellower and, hey, okay, if you don't want to smoke, there's more for me, that sort of thing. Whenever it was I would try and stop drinking, people would, you know, they'd give me the fifth degree on that or first degree or third degree, whatever that line of questioning is. Why don't you do it? I had that too. Did you? But I had a lot of people around me who were also 
problem drinkers. So problem drinkers are going to say that type of stuff. I didn't really spend a lot of time with people who didn't drink like me. As a matter of fact, I hung out with a lot of people who drank just a little bit more than me. So if I could point to everybody else if they have a problem, but because they drink more than me, I clearly don't. I get it. So you set yourself up to not have a problem because everybody else had the problem for you. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. So how did you make it through college? What was, what was your college experience like? I had two different college experiences. I got to about junior year where my drinking was not functional. My schooling was not functional. I ended up getting a 1-4, and it was thrown in academic probation. And when I got an academic probation, I had to go to this meeting with the Christian brother of the school. And there was a whole bunch of people in here. And I looked around and I'm like, I shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. These people are not like me. And the brother in a very condescending message said, you know, you have to get a 2.0 to stay in school. You know, some of you will get there. You might even get like a 2.1 or a 2.2. And I said, mother effer, (laughs) I am not just going to get a 2.1 or 2.2. I'm going to be at a 3.0. And I ended up getting like a 3-0, 3-1 the rest of the way. And that's where I kind of was able to pull it together. There were times I was going to drink and there were times that are not. And I got it together to figure out, well, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. And this is where I learned, go to every class, go to study sessions. I found it was easier for me to go to classes early in the morning. So I scheduled a lot of 8.05 and 8.30 classes, and I was done by 9 or 10. Hmm. My major In my major, they had classes that were like always at 3 p.m. So I had this huge gap that, that frustrated me. Mm-hmm. On the weekend, it was a different story. Uh, we went out and we went hard. And I remember throwing up every single time I went out, had a hangover every Saturday, every Sunday. But during the week, when I had classes, I held it together because I had to stay, it wasn't even necessarily I had to stay in school. I had to prove that Christian brother wrong. Hmm. How dare you tell me I might get a 2-0 or a 2-1? I'm going to show you that not only am I going to do that, I'm going to be the greatest. And I did. Did they have any inclination that the reason you were getting such a poor grade point average was because you were drinking and that was affecting it? Or were they oblivious to that? They didn't care. They didn't care. It was you hit this number, this is what you need to do. I needed to drop a major, and I needed to get a certain score the rest of the way. So is it safe to say that during the period of time that you were able to study and go to class, you were not drinking just by the sheer will of it and by having ulterior uh, things that you needed to do? Absolutely. I could pull it together for that. It's cool, yeah. And I think a lot of us were able to do that. I, I partied all the time when I was in college, but I still got... I still graduated with like a 3.5 or something like that. And, you know, one of the negative things about being a a functional alcoholic or functional drug addict is that it takes a longer time to finally admit that you really aren't that functional. And right now you mentioned getting sick. Did you did you get sick a lot? Did you have hangovers? Uh, Were you a blackout drinker? What kind of drinker were you? This changed over time. I'd say early on, not too many blackouts. A lot of being sick. Uh-huh. I had my share of blackouts. That's when I really let go. I was pledging a fraternity, and we went out to a bar, and the next thing I knew, I was waking up in the hospital with an IV in my arm. Oh, wow. I looked down, and my, my clean white shirt had 
it was just, it looked like I had rolled around on a bar floor, oh, floor no. and had gotten sick on it. And I immediately knew what had happened. And they told me, you're lucky to be alive. You almost died. Your friends came in and were thoughtful enough to bring you to the hospital, realizing you had this issue. Was it alcohol poisoning or what, what kind of? It was alcohol poisoning. Yeah. I think it was like multiple shots of 151. Mm. But there was a period of time I remember, and then I don't remember anything after that. I'm not remembering a lot of blackouts. I think I kind of pulled it together after college. I did a lot of drinking by myself. So my my drinking career was hiding it. Mm -hmm. Once I get out of college, drinking by myself, hiding it. Because if you didn't see what I was drinking, you couldn't call me an alcoholic. Mm. If you didn't, if I was at home, I wasn't hurting anybody. I wasn't getting in a car. I wasn't getting a DUI. And I had rules. I wasn't going to drink in the morning. I wasn't going to drink in the afternoon. I tried not to drink during the week because it would affect working. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked as a traffic reporter out of college. And a traffic reporter's life sucks. I had to be at the office for 5 a.m. You leave at 9. You come back for 2 or 3. And you stay till 6 or 7. So you kind of... Wake up incredibly ungodly early and you kind of get home and you have nothing more to do than go to bed. Hmm. And if I, I remembered, if I drank during those times, I was puzzled why I had to drink every single day and how difficult it was to break that. So if I didn't drink during the week, I could just drink on the weekends. Mm -hmm. But if I drank during the week, I had to drink every single night and it was so hard to not to break out of that pattern. How did you finally do that? I just wouldn't go to the store and pick up more booze. If I had, like, say, a 30-pack of Bud in the fridge, it would call my name. So there was a lot of willpower there of rule setting, for lack of a better term. I set rules that I would do this during this, but not during this time. So you had these rules set up so that the hours between your early shift and your later shift during the day, you did not drink. Right. And you held to that pretty carefully? Carefully, we had in the office, there was this high-end hotel that was there. Uh -huh. And that's where I, I learned learned of martinis. And I liked martinis because I was classy. So there were times that we went, shift was over at 2 p.m., depending on what I was doing. We'd go for one or two martinis. If that was the case, I was off to the races regardless of whether it was a Tuesday or a Friday. Hmm. So I tried to make those days not Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. But if I did that, I was, I was going to get rip-roaring drunk. And then how would you go back if you were rip-roaring drunk? You'd be going back. You still had to do the afternoon traffic. Now, this was a period of time where I wasn't working the afternoon shift. My shift changed quite a bit. I see. Uh, if I was going back, no, I'm not drinking. Because only alcoholics go back to work drunk. And I'm not an alcoholic. I swear. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, Check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you were functional. You set rules that you followed. Yep. Sounds like uh, your willpower at that point was sufficient. 
plus the fact that you were isolating and you were a loner when you were drinking kept you out of a lot of trouble. Yep. When did the wheels start to wobble around alcohol? I don't know. I don't know if it ever got really worse. I think it was stable. I found that when I went on antidepressants, my ability to need to drink excessively went away. Hmm that I kind of got pretty high early on, mm -hmm. and I'm sure it had to do with those medicines. Now, I found out after the fact that drink, drinking and having those medicines could have killed me. Yeah, You could get a seizure with that. Man, this is such a good question. I, on one hand, I want to say, I don't think there was any particular moment. On the other hand, when I look back at 2011, 2012, 2013, they were hazy. Mm -hmm. There is like a sepia tone to it. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of booze. I got into a job in 2011 that I was underqualified for and over my head. Mm. I ended up in another job after that of the same thing, that these two jobs almost killed me, spit me, uh, chewed me up, spit me out. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of booze there. I was drinking at night, every night. I was having beer every night. And although the alcohol did not cost me my job, in a sense, it did. It didn't directly, but because I was drinking alcoholically, it put me in a bad position. Yeah. I got to the job I'm in now, and somehow I was able to hang on there. Mm -hmm. My mother-in-law ended up having a stroke, and she passed away months after that. And then there was those periods of time with family issues and work issues that I don't think it was a moment I was falling off the cliff. Mm -hmm. It was just a moment that nothing was going on. Hmm. Nothing in my life was going on. I just was in cruise control down the highway. Wasn't getting worse, wasn't getting any better, but I just, there was no progress. Yeah. I just was there. Yeah, I get that. That's a tough spot to be in, especially for those of us who like to be feeling different than we are at any given moment. Uh, you, you mentioned about your mother-in-law. So at what point did you get married? We got married 2006. Uh-huh. Uh, met her in 2002. I when I when I stopped drinking, she never told me you have a problem. Really? She told me like years later that her mother told her, you know, I think Matt has a problem, and my wife dismissed it out of hand. Hmm. So I had nobody told me. I had to actually go to people and say, "Hey, I have this problem." "Oh, no you don't. I haven't seen you do that." "Well, actually, I'm waiting till you go to bed to drink." <laughs> yeah. My wife was great. She said, I don't think you had a shot. Huh. I don't think you had a shot or a chance because of how your family is. Because my family is just littered, beyond my nuclear family, just littered with problem drinkers. So she didn't think that you had a shot? To not be an alcoholic. To not be an alcoholic. Huh. You had no chance to escape this. So she was resigned to the fact that you were going to be a problem drinker or let's say even an alcoholic? Yeah, she said this after I told her I've quit. I'd like to go to meetings. I think I have a problem. And and it was more of, yeah, I, I don't think you ever had a chance to escape this. Huh. So she was supportive, at least initially, of me quitting, not realizing that AA isn't like you go, you graduate, you go to the next level, you end up graduating like high school, and then you don't go back. You've, you've learned your lesson. Because hmm. she asked me that, when do you get to stop going to these meetings? And go, uh-oh, <laughs> I got a problem here. Because <laughs> the answer is, well, you don't. Yeah. I think I got asked that question, you know, when when will you be able to not go to meetings? And I always say, well, probably when, I, when I'm when i drinking again, you know. And right. uh, that's not the right answer. 
So she put up with your drinking for what eight eight years past the point at which you guys got married. Yeah, and you had some kids during this time. Three kids. So, have any of them ever seen you drunk? My son, he he's fourteen now. I was two years sober. We were in a store, and he goes, "Hey, that's I don't remember the name of the beer. It was whatever the beer was. Hey, there's that beer that that Daddy drank." Remember, you used to drink that all the time. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He was in kindergarten or second grade or uh-huh. like, oh, my God, I can't believe he remembers that. He doesn't really remember it now. Huh. My middle daughter was too young to have seen it. And I only drank for two days with my youngest. Hmm. So for the most part, it's not part of what they see. My son has even come to me and said, Dad, I've made a personal commitment to myself that I'm never going to drink or do drugs. And I'm like, oh, God bless you. <laughs> I don't think you can make that (laughs) promise yet. But he talks a lot about how proud he is of me. I'm very proud of you that you did this. I'm proud of your podcast. I'm proud that you help others. Mm -hmm. I'm proud you don't drink anymore. So he knows I'm in the pro. He he understands what I do. The other ones, they don't understand what it's like going to a meeting. They're like, well, why do you go to these meetings? I tell them to be a better dad. But you already are a great dad. Like, yeah. Because I go to these meetings. Yeah. And I saw a change. I saw a change in how the kids reacted to me. Well, once they know, it's a whole different picture. My oldest, who's now 32, I remember when he was just a kid, he would say, Dad, when can I go to those meetings with you? And I said, well, you know, maybe when you're older, you'll, you'll need to. But for right now, no. And there came a point at which, and I was encouraged to do this by other more learned people in the program, There came a point at which my kids were of the age to be able to understand what alcoholism was and why I needed to go to meetings and the importance of them keeping things anonymous. And uh, my kids are only about a year, year and a half apart. So when the three of them were, let's say, between the ages of 10 and 13, somewhere in that area, I was able to sit them down as a group and say, this is what's going on. And they seem to understand. And I've had certain experiences just like yours with the kids saying to me how grateful they were that I got sober and that they never had to see me drunk. So congratulations on being able to have three kids who, if they never saw you drunk, they certainly don't remember when you were. Yeah, it's a good feeling. Definitely a good feeling. So when you first came to AA, you mentioned that it was 2014. What did you know about AA before you got there? And why did you go to AA when you stopped? Didn't you, did you ever have the sense that you could just stop on your own and not have to do AA? AA never came into my mind as something I should be doing to stop drinking hmm. because that's what alcoholics do. And even though I had to stop drinking, you know, if I say that I have a problem and I start drinking again, then you'll hold me accountable. Hmm. I reached out to some people who I knew were in AA mm-hmm. and I asked some stuff. And the thing that concerned me was if I talk to people about it, they might either say, yeah, you have a problem which would scare the hell out of me. Or they would say, you're making too big of a deal out of it, which would embarrass me. Hmm. So I talked to my therapist. And my therapist didn't give me either answer. Hmm. He asked some questions and he said, well, why don't you go to an AA meeting? Then you can decide for yourself. I said, okay, well, an AA meeting is pretty scary to me. And he goes, yeah, it's, you're going to be scared probably the first nine times you go. But why don't you just go? What do you got to lose? And then you can hear what other people are saying and decide if this is for you. And I didn't really want to do that because to me, AA was a church basement, maybe a dirty floor, 
six guys with long beards and trench coats who had nothing left in life and an incandescent light bulb swinging around. Yeah. It was a place to mourn. Oh, boy. My first meeting was a beginner's meeting because I thought, well, that's what you do. I'm a beginner. And I, I literally, because I, because I dress up for meetings at work, I, I, I ironed a shirt. Uh-huh. I ironed khakis. I had nice shoes on. And I was I was overdressed by a little bit. And the beginner's meeting was in a neighborhood where there were a lot of sober houses. I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. And that meeting scared the hell out of me because it, it was a lot of low bottom stuff, a lot of relapses, if not people already drunk. Mm. So I ended up finding another meeting that was an all men's meeting. Mm-hmm. And I, it took every bit of courage to do this because I went in the wrong entrance of the church. It was a bigger church and there was like a basketball game going on and I walked into one room and there were boy scouts there and I didn't know how to ask the boy scouts hey where's the AA meeting so I just kind of wandered until I saw a bunch of other guys and I looked around and I wasn't sure it was the meeting because there was a lot of guys and people were happy and they were loud and they were laughing so it could have just been a church meeting and I kind of figured out it was an AA meeting Uh uh-huh And the speaker had, it wasn't a speaker, it was a discussion meeting, but the guy qualified. He had my story. He was close to 40 years sober. He said, I didn't drink every night. I could stop at one or two beers, but when I did, I was miserable. And when he said that, I'm like, "I, I have a problem. This is me. Somebody I can relate to. This old timer who said he drank like me. And I kept going to that meeting because the people there sounded like me. And they were nice. How often did that meeting take place? Once a week. It was a Thursday meeting. And I just looked forward to every Thursday. So was that the only meeting you were going to at that point? No, I was picking up meetings as, as time went on. Slowly, I was adding meetings to my repertoire. Yeah. There was another meeting at the same church on Monday. Uh-huh. I went to that. Then I found that a lot of those guys went to a Tuesday meeting, so I went to that one. And there were a bunch of guys, they went to the Wednesday meeting, so I went to that. I started picking up meetings based on what I heard from other people. Yeah, that's the best way to do it, too. Uh, it, it gives you the opportunity to vet a meeting and feel a little bit more comfortable just walking through the door. You know, I don't, I don't know whether it just feels like just for a second here, Matt, that we skipped over what might have been, or maybe it's, it wasn't, uh, a turning point for you and a moment of clarity, a moment of truth, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was that took you to the edge of the cliff. We were talking about your kids and your wife, and then you were in AA. And I wondered, was there were there a few more defining moments that occurred before you actually got to AA that were turning points or um, like moments of truth? I just remember being really negative. Everything sucked. It wasn't like my life was falling apart. Uh, We had just gone through a bankruptcy. Mm. So I had money issues for a long time. I I would, hence to say, my mindset in drinking put me in a position to overspend what was coming in. The bankruptcy, my mother-in-law, work wasn't great for me. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like everything sucked. I remember there were some periods of time there where I had these panic attacks where suicide became an option in my head. There are a lot of moments there where I do not want to live. I am an albatross around my, at the time, just my son and my wife, and it would be far better for the world if I checked out. Yeah. There were a lot of those suicidal thoughts towards the end. 
It's funny, Howard. You're asking these questions. I haven't really thought about this or connected the dots until just now. So the clinical depression, I'm assuming, is what you had that you were being treated for. Yes. I have clinical depression as well, and, and certainly clinical depression creates at any time it wants, ideations about suicide not being around and wouldn't the world be a better place. Mm -hmm. But you were still drinking while you were taking the antidepressants. Yes. You were taking an antidepressant and then drinking depressants. So right. uh, the, the net was not a whole lot of progress, I'll bet. No, that, that's quite a war going on in my brain. Right. So you finally got to this place, it sounds like, where just nothing was working. You were feeling suicidal. Things were tough at home. Things were tough at the job. Is it fair to say you were aimless at that point? Aimless. Oh, what a great word that is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was aimless. Nothing was going to be happening. I just, I just was there. I was treading water. Yeah. So you found AA, which is a great thing. And the fact that you've stayed sober since that day, I think you said a few things about the early meetings you went to that would... If somebody told me only that and then asked whether I thought the guy stayed sober for a while after that, I'd have to say yes, because it sounds like you connected at a pretty deep level early on with AA. Was there anything about the program that bugged you or that seemed out of skew with the way you wanted to think about alcoholism? No. It was hard to say I was an alcoholic the first time. Yeah. But saying I was an alcoholic was very freeing. Early on, I felt great that I finally figured out what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I'd always figure out what's wrong with me. Why am I like this? What's wrong with me? I figured it out. I had, I had alcoholism and I ended up being grateful. I ended up saying early in the meetings, like, I don't know if this is going to offend you. I don't know if this is the wrong thing to say, but I feel grateful. I had an alcoholic past because it allowed me to appreciate what I have now and understand what my problem was. So much like any obsession that I've had, I just focused everything into AA. I wanted to know everything about AA. Mm. I did those Joe and Charlie podcasts and just listened to that mm -hmm. because I heard about it with the other people. I, w I wanted to impress people on how great of an <laughs> AA member I was. I wanted to be an A-plus AA member and graduate this program. I'm going to go through the steps faster than anybody else. Yeah. So I still had a lot to work on, but it became my obsession and- one of the things that kept me going was I would see the people raise their hands when they say anybody coming back. I just felt like maybe they were on vacation and they hadn't been to the meeting at two weeks. So, hey, I'm coming back. I, I've been away. And then when I realized what coming back meant, I didn't want to feel that shame. So it was a lot easier just to deal with what I'm yeah. dealing with and going to meetings than to go out and then have to come back and say, I went out. And there were people who took care of me and I never wanted to disappoint them. So it wasn't an option to me at that point. So you had just as many negative reasons for going out as you did positive reasons for staying in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's an, that's an important thing to consider. Early on in sobriety, I thought it was important for me to impress other people <laughs> with just how sober I really was. And that the only way I could really be sober was to convince other people that I was really, really working a good program. So I had a really good story laid out. I had, uh, like you, I, I knew what I needed to know and I'd espouse it at every point. And then one, one time I was about 18 months sober and this woman walked up to me after I had shared in the meeting. She had quite a few more years and she said, wow, Howard, you are really, really getting this. You are really making progress. 
And I said, thank you. And I felt proud, but deep down inside, I felt a little sick because I wasn't feeling that way inside. And so the question I want to ask you is, at what point did your insides start to match your outside? It was at least a good six months, minimally, I think. So I got sober in March. By the fall, it was probably around the time of I went on a retreat. I was vocal about that there was an old, the old timer that I connected with. He always said in his shares, did I get sober for this shit? Yeah, I did. And I remember thinking, did I get sober for this shit? No, I didn't. This is not a good feeling. I remember that first vacation we went on without booze. I did not enjoy that vacation. It was depressing. It was mournful because there was a lot of alcohol on on those vacations. Mm -hmm. And that first vacation was hard. And I was depressed and I was down. Mm. I was also vocal with everybody Mm -hmm. when I wasn't doing so good. And I made my phone calls. So I wasn't doing good, Hmm. but I was at least reporting on myself saying, I don't feel good. I need some help. And that got me through things. So you were taking the action. That's something I didn't do a whole lot of early on. And I almost went back out over it was instead of reaching out, I would just pull within and would isolate further and further. And then the problem with that is that you go back to meetings where you haven't been really very open about the way you're really feeling. So people get the wrong impression of how you're feeling and then they don't understand. And then it's so much easier not to go to that meeting anymore because to be around a bunch of non-understanding people. But uh, I think that's really great that you were able to tell on yourself and be outward with the way you were feeling inward. That's, that's really a beautiful thing. So you had a sponsor from the very start or pretty much how long did it take you to get through all this stuff i would say more of the speed bump was on him it was scheduling time on him and this was probably a good thing because i would have raced through everything Mm -hmm. i went and found online ways to do the steps like these spreadsheets for each one i was i was throwing things in spreadsheets i was going to organize this like a business <laughs> and having some knowledge now, if I went by the, if I were to do it again, I'd get a legal pad. Yeah. And I would just do it exactly like Bill writes in the book. Um, I, I had, I think, the Hazleton stuff, all of that. Yeah. So I was, I was done by the end of that year that I had gotten through stuff. And I think the fourth and fifth was the hard. Well, I'd say I got to the fourth and fifth by that point, which you get to six and seven. Uh-huh. Took me some time in eight and nine. And the feedback I got there is I had a whole list of, I need to do this, I need to do this. And he just turned to me, he goes, what you need to do right now is do an amends to your family. This is what that means. You need to be there for them. You need to do the dishes. You need to cook. You just need to be present for your family and involved with activities. Mm-hmm. He kind of looked at the other people and he's like, I don't even go to this right now. You, The place you need to spend the most time on, you're family and be there and do things for them. That's where you're going to get the most out of this. Demonstrate actual living amends by your behavior. Yep. That's brilliant. That was great feedback because I was like search. I was scouring of, I need to find people to apologize for. And he's like, you got this wrong. Well, you were taking such a a logical approach to something that requires a little bit more finesse, but it sounds like your sponsor had you nailed. Yeah. Yeah. So you went through that process. You made amends to the family, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were the the succeeding years like for you? Uh, Let's say from the time that you'd worked all 12 steps until 
let's say, even the recent days, but what, what did those years look like in your sobriety? There's some up and down times. There was a period of time in 2018, 2019, 2020 that I really went into a dip. And a lot of it I'm realizing was when my mom passed away. Mm -hmm. My mom had pancreatic cancer. She was not one to really take care of her health. Terrified of doctors, because if you go to a doctor, then they'll put you in the hospital and then you die. So you don't go to a doctor. Mm -hmm. And she had all types of health issues and got a call. She's in the hospital. They think it might be cancer. Think it might be colon cancer. And then she was home for a week and they're like, well, they're just, you know, they're just checking. They're just checking. And I knew I wasn't getting the full answer. And finally she called and said, I got pancreatic cancer that has spread to the colon. Mm. And knowing enough about cancer, that's stage four. She was gone in a month. And I realized that I was numb at that point. There was Mm. a period of time of deep sadness when I found out she was sick. And I think I did my grieving before she died. And then I was numb for a good year. Mm -hmm. I did a different podcast that was a fan show that got Mm -hmm. me really involved in that world. And it wasn't healthy. And that took me out of AA. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't as regular and active. Hmm. I was present when I was there. And there were periods of time before that that I just was getting bored in AA meetings. Mm-hmm. I just I had heard the same thing over and over again, and it just it just it didn't work for me. I wasn't drinking, but program wise, I was. All of this stuff happened at year five, which I was terrified. I heard so many year five stories of everything <laughs> falling apart. I was terrified of year five, and my year five was terrible. I I was just numb. I didn't have any feeling. To what extent were you doing service work and sponsorship at that point? I was doing some service work, so I was a GSR, mm-hmm. but. The GSR stuff was kind of passive. Yeah. It's funny you're saying this. When I became the treasurer of my district, that was another thing that was a kick in the ass. Hmm. Once I did that, I kicked back into gear. I see. Yeah, I always I always like to look for that in a man or a woman's story. I can almost always draw a direct connection between the amount of service work someone is doing, whether it's sponsorship or involvement in the mm-hmm. district or whatever else, and what is going on in their life that seems to be pulling them away from the program. So, so you were doing a fan, you were doing a fan podcast. You were feeling kind of bored with AA at that time. What was it that, that, that got you out of that feeling? Uh, things blew up on the fan show and yeah, I realized this is not healthy. This is not good. I walked away from it mm-hmm. and I came back to AA a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And because I had the equipment, I decided to do my own podcast. I'm like, this will be a piece of cake. I remembered Mm. there were no podcasts out there in 2014. Right. I started thinking about this and then I looked and I saw there's like hundreds now and I'm like, Oh crap. But I got the equipment (laughs) and in doing this, I was terrified of the old timers thinking, I don't do that because uh, uh, anonymity. Yeah. But I, I, my, my group of people, I've got this group of people who it's almost like I have a bunch of sponsors And I Mm -hmm. talked them through and I got them involved in the process of what do you think I should do? And they gave me the blessing. And I realized that once I started doing the podcast, that's what brought me back in. Mm. I did the podcast because I wanted to continue podcasting about something and always had something in the back of my head. I could do an AA podcast 
and I had mm-hmm. the equipment. And what ended up happening is it, draw, it drove me deeper into the program, hmm. almost to the point that every meeting I went to was research. Hmm that I wanted to dig into what everybody was saying because I wanted to understand where it was coming from because this would be a topic. To the point now, I started reading, writing the big book, which is incredibly intimidating. And I was looking at this thing and thinking, this is going to be a tough slog. It's like reading a suspense novel to me. Mm -hmm. And I look at it like, this is giving me deepness into the program because I, I started, we, at my Monday night meeting, we were reading to employers and I've read that chapter a million times. And then I read the, the one line that said, you know, give this book to your junior executive. And the first thing I thought of is this is Hank Parkhurst and Hank is saying, get this because it's going to boost our sales. And I was able to share that. And I'm like, okay, Mm a couple things here when we're reading this, I'm glad it's good to get this to executives and I'm glad the book became what it became. But there are little things in here that their first intention was to make money on this book. And he's throwing a sales pitch out there to every business that you will understand your employee if every Fortune 500 company buys thousands of these books. He's not doing this for altruistic ways at first. He's looking to sell a book here. This is a sales novel. And it's so funny that I'm just picking this up now. Now, having said that, Let's bring it into the world of, of this is what it means to me. Mm-hmm. And it gives me more compassion to those, not just employees of other people, because it, 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 this gives you an idea of if you're not sure what you're dealing with, here's an idea. Hmm. But I had to, I, I went back to reading the encyclopedia in a sense of I have to understand what's behind this. So that it helped you draw closer to AA. Yes. I enjoy the history. I, I you know, Hank Parkhurst is kind of like the lost founder of AA in the way that his involvement in getting the program started was immense, but yet he ended up drinking and mm-hmm. uh, was never really able to put together much sobriety after that. Well, I haven't finished this book and I'm not to the point where Hank is drunk. So now I'm like, I want to see that story. It's sort of like, you know, Anakin Skywalker is going to become Darth Vader, but you just don't know how it happened. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I so, didn't mean to spoil. The, no, I, I, I know. It. I know about that. <laughs> Hank happened, but I just want to, I want to see the story. Like I knew Anakin became Darth Vader, Yeah. but I want to see that moment when he turns to the dark side because Hank should have been the guy who's on the other side of the coin with Bob. I, I reading this, I'm feeling like, Dr. Bob is kind of a passive guy. He's very happy and content with his Akron group and very happy with, you know, being an extension of the Oxford groups. And then you have this group in New York who is looking to start this revolution and afraid of what the Akron people are going to say because they know in the back of their heads, this is not what they're into. This is not what we were supposed to be. And Hank was so driving and driving this stuff that he was more of a driver of moving forward than Bob, and then he drank. Yeah. And now we don't hear of him because of that. He's mostly unknown to most people, most young, especially most younger people who haven't had a chance to go through the history very much. But uh, it sounds like that exercise for you is really very edifying and, very much. Uh, and giving you a whole different perspective on the program. I know it has for me, doing the the podcast and the big book podcast and now this it's all been very very gratifying 
So your AA program has been proved greatly by the working of the steps and getting involved in the podcast. How about your personal life? Uh, what, what kind of impact do you see your ongoing sobriety making in that regard? I'm generally shy and introverted, so I'm still scared of people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to reach out to people and be kind. It took yeah. me a long time. Uh, at work, I'm in a leadership position. Mm-hmm. It has helped me in being a leader because I don't just focus on all the things that get you promoted per se or get you a shout out. I think about what can I do for my peer or what can I do for one of my agents that is altruistic? Like what can I do just to help somebody else? What can I do just to teach somebody else? Not because I'm gonna get credit for it, but because it's just gonna be the good thing to do. Now, in the end, it'll give me an interview answer later on, and I'm looking for those interview answers. But if I'm going to get to that next place, I feel like I have to be more of a servant. So I do that a lot more. I volunteer for service work outside of AA. Mm -hmm. I sit there and listen to people when they have their problems. I get to their root cause. I've learned to be less judgmental of just asking, you know, how come? And not having, I will tell you, my, my quick wit, I bite my tongue a lot more. Yeah. I would rather be boring and not, I'm always thinking about if I do this, I could piss them off. I'll may have to make an amends. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I'll just shut my mouth. Yeah. I'm the same way. And, and I have to admit that mostly in my marriage, I've been married 35 years, but you know, there, there's that, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? And do I need to be the guy saying it? And oftentimes, you know, bitten lips are just a, a real big part of the game. But it sounds to me like you're practicing these principles in your affairs. Uh, And to me, that's the greatest demonstration of a strong program that I see out there is how are people living the rest of their lives? And and does the way their work life or their home life or their interpersonal relationships, you know, what do those look like? And if those are looking pretty good, you can usually trace it back to a well-worked program. Absolutely. Everything is step-based in my life, whether it's not conscious or unconscious. I'm not looking with a diagram saying, well, this is step one thing. But I think through when I'm having a hard time. Yeah. Where is the step in this? What step could I work? Where's my part in it? I'm having some difficulty with a contractor. Mm -hmm. And we have had immense, immense problems with some financing and and there there was some storm damage we had. Oh, yeah. And every obstacle that you could think of has come up that has prevented us from not only getting the insurance money, but getting the refinancing we need too. Mm. So these two things, like everything has to fail to get to the point we're at. And I think through when I'm really having the tough times of this will eventually pass. Mm -hmm. We'll get through this. You know, the contractor may be losing his mind right now, but he'll be out of our life someday. Yeah. He's eventually going to do the job. There's part of the step work of there's action I have to take. And I put aside things that I want to do to follow up and call people. Like I'm doing all that stuff and prioritizing. That comes up in my work life too, of prioritizing eating the frog. The one thing I got to do before I get to the pleasurable tasks is I have to eat a frog and I don't want to eat the frog. Right. So I'm going to eat the frog first. Yeah. Get it out of the way and do the hard work first, make the toughest phone call first, et cetera. And that's counterintuitive to the way we live our lives before we get to AA. Getting sober is the easiest hard thing I think there is to do, you know. 
I have a friend who, when I tell him I'm having a hard time getting on my exercise bike, having a hard time taking taking a class, and he goes, well, you got sober. This isn't as hard as getting sober, is it? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. <laughs> getting on my bike is not as hard as getting sober. And he goes, why do you have to do a half-hour workout? Why can't you do 10 minutes? You're right. Why can't I do 10 minutes? And I think that through when I think it's hard. Is this as hard as getting sober? Hell no. Okay, I can do it. Yeah. And, I, and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. That was another thing around alcohol is it had to be all or nothing or I just wouldn't do it. No, it, it could be, you know, I have the dogs. I don't feel like taking the hour long walk with them. I could do it for 15 minutes and they'll be happy and they'll do their business and we'll go home. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. And, and, you know, the big part of that is that I think we are as a group, alcoholics tend to be people of extremes and that is... It's either all or it's nothing. And there's yes. so much gray area in between that is not necessarily a bad place to live. So uh, I, I get it. Sounds like the gifts are really materializing in good thinking. Your life has been greatly improved by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, hasn't it? It has. I wish I found this in my 20s. I've come to accept that it happened when it was supposed to happen. Yes. Well, this has been beautiful. I, I'm so glad you and I got a chance to spend some time together. I've really enjoyed listening to Sober Friends podcast. You and I have never met, but I love you and I respect yeah, the program too. that you have. And I hope that everything is successful in your program and staying close and in the middle of the herd. It means the world, doesn't it? It does. This has just been terrific. And uh, again, many thanks for doing this, Matt. Oh, you're welcome, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Matt J., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.